You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Edgeworks Nebula. Hey folks, this is Lacey Hannon. Welcome to Settle the Stars. When it comes to televised or cinematic science fiction, there are few franchises that have achieved what Star Trek has over the last half century. Walk into any Trekkie convention and you'll find more fans wearing pointy ears and sporting Vulcan bowl cuts than the number of exponentially reproducing fuzzy little tribbles that overwhelmed the Enterprise in Season 2, Episode 13. Over its 56-year history, the series has led to 12 shows, 13 movies, more than 850 novels, board games, video games, action figures, collectible spoons, and even online courses in how to speak Klingon. If you are one of the 25 people in the world who is fluent in Klingon and are listening to this podcast right now, shoui yichu! You know what I'm talking about. Indeed, for many, Star Wars has evolved beyond serialized entertainment to become more of a way of life. Even for those outside the fandom, or who aren't particularly fond of science fiction to begin with, it's not hard to see the appeal in the show's basic premise. From the very beginning, Star Trek envisioned a future where humanity has set aside its petty differences and proclivity for war to search the universe for distant civilizations we can learn from and share our own knowledge with. Noble aspirations for humanity, to be sure. Though the sets of the 1960s TV show were noticeably limited by the budget, the imaginative scripts and the charming cast easily won viewers over. William Shatner's Captain Kirk, Leonard Nimoy's Commander Spock, Michelle Nichols' Lieutenant Uhura, and all the rest of the classic crew introduced audiences watching from their homes to an unusually diverse group of intergalactic explorers. While the storylines promoted forward-thinking values and an awareness of and appreciation for the importance of scientific progress. One can only guess at how many astronomers and space physicists first fell in love with science while sitting wide-eyed and cross-legged in front of brand new episodes of 1960s Star Trek. One of the world's most brilliant physicists, Stephen Hawking, was also one of Star Trek's biggest fans. He even got the chance to cameo as himself playing poker with Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, and the android Data on Star Trek The Next Generation. On the show's enduring importance, Hawking said, Science fiction like Star Trek is not only good fun, but it also serves a serious purpose, that of expanding the human imagination. We may not yet be able to boldly go where no man or woman has gone before, but at least we can do it in the mind. We can explore how the human spirit might respond to future developments in science, and we can speculate on what those developments might be. While Star Trek would introduce many outlandish concepts, including just how many humanoid alien civilizations there are in the universe and the previously mentioned comedically multiplying triples, 
the show did explore in a more realistic manner than most other sci-fi where our scientific developments might one day lead us and what we might be able to achieve with such advanced technology. As wild of a future as the show may have presented, Leonard Nimoy noted that what they did on Star Trek always had some connection to the potential reality. For Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, no factor was more important in the development of the show than they got the science right. They may have been dealing with technology a couple centuries more advanced than our own, but the tech of Star Trek would find its basis in known physics and plausible theories. Most of it, anyway. Today, we're going to take a look at just how plausible the intergalactic travel of this beloved series really is. When you think of Star Trek, one of the first things to come to mind must surely be the classic saucer-shaped USS Enterprise, probably as it's just about to launch into warp speed, leaving colorful, ghostly streaks of light floating in space behind its dual-winged thrusters. The Enterprise was the home away from home for Kirk and crew and their way of getting around the universe. It's also where the majority of the series was set. For a show built entirely around the concept of exploring deep space, the logistics of traveling vast distances, and in a timely enough manner to make it a compelling 60 minutes of television, was of some importance. When you're visiting a new alien world every episode, worlds which in reality might be hundreds or thousands, even millions of light years apart, you need a reasonable way for your characters to get there. With our current technology, it takes about 12 years for us to get to Neptune. It would take about 6,000 years for us to get to our nearest planetary system, Alpha Centauri. When you're boldly going places several thousand times that distance from Earth, Conventional means of space travel just aren't going to cut it. So what about light speed? Alpha Centauri is about 4.4 light years from Earth, meaning it would take us about four years and change to get there traveling at the speed of light. Not bad. If you get your 23rd century starship up to speeds faster than light, say 25 times the speed of light, you could get there in just a couple of months maybe still not fast enough for a show that's meant to thrill and entertain you. But if you're giving it all she's got, Captain, as Scotty would say, you could find a way to multiply the speed of light however many times you need to make the trip more or less instantaneous, right? Well, not so fast, if you'll pardon the pun, please. If you ever weren't a fan of math, here's one more reason not to like it. Through math, it's been demonstrated that nothing, apart from light itself, can travel at the speed of light, and certainly not faster than it. To achieve such speeds, mathematically speaking, you would need an infinite amount of force and an infinite amount of energy to propel your starship. Thanks, math, for crushing our dreams of zipping through space faster than the speed of light. But what about close to the speed of light? Less than infinite sounds like something that could be a real-world possibility someday. Well, if you remember your Einstein, funny things happen when you approach the speed of light. The closer you get to the speed of light, the slower you experience time. This is what's known as time dilation, and it's not just some theoretical concept. It was actually demonstrated in a 1970s experiment which compared super-accurate atomic clocks 
that were flown around the world in commercial airplanes, with a synchronized clock that stayed back at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. The gap in recorded time between the clocks was minimal since those that were flown were only traveling at jet speeds. But if you scale that same result to a Federation starship cruising through space at near light speed velocity, an exponential amount of time will have passed for the rest of the stationary universe by the time the crew of the Enterprise sets down wherever they're headed to offload their triple stowaways. You can see how it wouldn't make sense for the universe to age centuries every time you want your cast to go from point A to point B in an ongoing series. Thus, the concept of the warp drive was born, an engine that would generate what's known as a subspace around the ship or a kind of bubble that exists outside the four dimensions of space-time that would allow a ship like the Enterprise to circumvent our known laws of physics, which prohibit faster-than-light travel. Could subspaces like those found in Star Trek really exist? Well, Superstring theory does propose that the universe could contain as many as 10 dimensions. When it comes to the mysteries of the universe and things we don't have definitive answers to, it's safe to never say never, especially when the plausibility of really cool sci-fi like Star Trek is on the line. However plausible or implausible the idea of an extra-dimensional subspace bubble that shields Federation star trips from Einstein's equations, the way the Enterprise achieves its propulsion within the bubble is based on pretty sound physics. The ship's drive is actually a matter-antimatter reactor. It combines matter in the form of deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen, with antimatter-antideuterium to produce a controlled explosion. This gives off the energy required to both power the ship's systems and accelerate it faster than the speed of light. Experimental particle physicist Jeffrey Hengst, who works with very small amounts of antimatter at Switzerland's CERN Research Center, praised the use of this kind of reactor for long-range space travel, saying, The use of antimatter as a propulsive source of energy in Star Trek is exactly right. In principle, if you knew how to harness that, it's the most weight-efficient rocket fuel you can imagine. HelloFresh is a mealtime saver. I can't overstate how much this delivery kit saved us after we had our twins. Not having to meal plan, but also having easy, foolproof, step-by-step -step recipes meant my husband or I could step into the kitchen for a break from the newborn craziness for a sanity check and a joyful moment to ourselves. And I know most of us are looking at the price changes around us and wondering what we can do to make our lives a little easier. According to info from Zagat Dining Survey, HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than dining at a restaurant and is even cheaper than grocery shopping. Who couldn't do with a little money back in their pockets based on some well-done math? Join us in our HelloFresh appreciation. Go to HelloFresh.com STS16, that's one six, and use code STS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash STS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts with code STS16. There are, however, a couple of road bumps on the way to achieving a matter-antimatter reactor of our own. Antimatter isn't exactly the kind of thing you pick up at the supermarket. It takes energy to produce and is special processes to store, since it's destroyed the moment it comes into contact with matter, which is, well, everywhere. 
On producing and storing the kind of antimatter that fuels the ship on Star Trek, Hengst says, it would take something like a hundred billion years, that's longer than the known age of the universe, to accumulate that type of antimatter with the technology we have today. That's a problem Starfleet clearly manages to figure out by the year 2265. We have time. Then there's the question of how you harness that energy. Could colliding matter and antimatter actually be used to accelerate a spaceship rather than blowing it up? Well, if you have a sufficient supply of dilithium crystals on hand to act as stabilizers and conduits in the reaction, it could certainly be possible. The only problem for future real-world space travel of the Star Trek variety is that dilithium crystals don't really exist. They are a handy and purely fictional way of helping known physics bridge a gap we don't know if we can really bridge. Not much is revealed to us about dilithium crystals on Star Trek, other than that they are exceedingly rare, highly sought after, and the perfect thing for making warp drives work. Until the day we find dilithium crystals of our own, we'll have to explore other avenues for stabilizing and harnessing energy from antimatter reactors for use in deep space travel. But let's say you've got your matter-antimatter reactor running smoothly and can kick into subspace and zip on out of here anytime a Klingon warship comes snooping around. You're good to go, right? That's what the creators of the show thought until observant fans pointed out a small flaw in what the crew should realistically expect to experience upon entering warp. You know that feeling on a roller coaster when it suddenly plummets down a drop or pulls into a sharp curve and you're pressed back into your seat so hard you feel like you might rip all the way through it? Well, those are roller coaster speeds, which at their fastest manage about 150 miles per hour. Now, imagine you're on the USS Enterprise, enjoying the ship's artificial gravity and listening to the reassuring voice of your captain saying something inspiring about exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new civilizations as you strap into your seat and prepare to go from standstill to eyeball-melting light-speed velocity. As the authors of the Star Trek Encyclopedia so colorfully put it, such dramatic acceleration would instantly turn the crew into chunky salsa. Of course, the writers had to come up with a solution that would allow the crew to remain intact while going into warp. Thus, we got inertial dampers, which somehow prevent the crew from experiencing any such roller coaster effect when the Enterprise suddenly accelerates or decelerates. How do they work? Well, no inertial dampers exist currently, and they're certainly in a completely different category of tech from the shock absorbers you find on a car. But in his book, The Physics of Star Trek, Lawrence Krauss writes that inertial dampers must create an artificial world inside a starship in which the reaction force that responds to the accelerating force is cancelled. The accelerating force being the jump into light speed, and the reaction force being the feeling of being pulled back into your seat. So there must be some kind of gravitational field that's generated inside the ship that pulls you in the opposite direction from the force of acceleration with equal intensity. Sounds like kind of a tenuous arrangement when you're dealing with light speed forces, and I wouldn't want to be the first to try it. But hey, it successfully gets the crew of the Enterprise from point A to point B, right? 
In addition to warp, there is one other mode of travel Star Trek is especially known for, that of teleportation, something my mother and I have been wishing for since I was a wee one. Even people who claim not to know a thing about Star Trek have surely heard the phrase, beam me up, Scotty, used at some point. The Enterprise's transporters actually first came about as a cost-effective way of getting characters from the ship down to the alien worlds they visited without having to show the ship landing and taking off. Be that as it may, the transporters with their nifty shimmering visuals and whirring sound effects instantly became one more classic component of the series. But just how realistic are they? Could people really transmit themselves through solid matter and across great distances in the blink of an eye sometime in the future as they do on Star Trek? The transporters on the show work by breaking a person's corporeal self down into an energy pattern and beaming that information into another location where it perfectly rematerializes into the person that was sent. Theoretical physicists at the University of Maryland have been working on their own form of teleportation, though it looks a little different from how it appears on Star Trek. They are able to isolate an atom in one location, then connect it by laser beam to an atom in another location, and force the distant atom to mimic the properties of the original. This is quite different from transferring the original atom itself from one place to another, but it still may be a step in the direction of Star Trek's technology. It's also worth noting that using the Maryland team's method, it would take an incredibly long time and an enormous amount of energy to transfer the amount of atoms that make up a person. Even if you could transmit all of the information that makes up who you are in a timely fashion and with 100% accuracy, there remains the question of whether it would really be safe to transport yourself to some distant location out in the open. What if a bug happened to fly through your location while you were in the middle of transporting? Could it disrupt your atoms as they're in the process of rematerializing, leaving you looking like something out of a Picasso? Thoughts of Jeff Goldblum's experiment in The Fly come to mind, and there's just no way anybody is signing up for that. As DeForest Kelly's Bones McCoy once put it on the original series, crazy way to travel, spreading a man's molecules all over the universe. Then again, on The Next Generation, LeVar Burton's Georgie LaForge was confident that transporting, in his own words, really is the safest way to travel. While there are so many things we could imagine going wrong in the teleportation of a human being, as with the dilithium crystals that help run the matter-antimatter engine of the Enterprise, there is surely some future technology the Starfleet engineers have mastered that makes transporting, even into unknown or hostile territory, a consistently safe process. Star Trek already makes things a little easier on itself and a little harder for us to judge against real-world physics by sending the energy patterns of those who transport through the same subspace that allows starships to bypass the laws of physics. Without the advantage of physics-defying subspace, it may be some time before we can beam people up, with or without a Scotty on deck. Fortunately, we're not restricted by TV show budgets and can always visit planets the old-fashioned way by simply landing our ships. While we may be a ways off from figuring out some of the biggest leaps Star Trek makes in achieving deep space travel, 
it's clear the series has carefully and thoroughly thought through the logistics of how Starfleet physicists and engineers managed to make it all happen with the discoveries that were made in their reality. As Stephen Hawking suggests with his remark on the role played by science fiction, science fiction doesn't necessarily ask us to believe that what it shows us will be the future, only that it's one possible vision of the future. On that score, Star Trek delivers a highly optimistic, endlessly fascinating glimpse into a future which much is made possible and the nations of the Earth are prepared to respond to opportunity with collective action for the good of all. Star Trek may not be the world we have today, and it may not be the world we will have two centuries from now, but it's a future we can enjoy and engage with philosophically and intellectually, and it's a future worth aspiring to. Happy terraforming. In the meantime, be sure to leave a review and tell your friends about Settle the Stars. Every review really helps for an indie show like ours. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Settle the Stars is available on pretty much every podcasting platform. And we're also mirroring our episodes on YouTube at youtube.com slash edgeworksentertainment. And be sure to ring that bell so you know when there's a new episode. We also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash edgeworksentertainment. The support of listeners like you is what makes this show possible, and I am so grateful to the people who have already joined. Settle the Stars is a proud member of the Edgeworks Nebula, a collection of intriguing and informative podcasts from Edgeworks Entertainment. Edgeworks Nebula. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.